Well, Colossians is a lot like the Grand Canyon. A couple years back, maybe more than a decade now, actually it was a long time ago, 2010, uh, our family went out west and we went to the Grand Canyon. You guys just went, or did y'all see the Grand Canyon? Um, When we were there, you know, you hear about the Grand Canyon all your life, and then when you're there, you can't take it in. Your eyes can't, they can't measure the distances you're seeing. You have no comparison. At some point, uh, we were looking... Somebody had some binoculars and they let them use them and we were looking at a ridge that looked about halfway down the canyon and there were these little flecks of color on it and I looked through the binoculars and it was tense. So I don't know how far away that was but my brain was just not registering those distances. Meanwhile, pretty much all of our kids, I don't remember if it was all of them, well, okay, for just Virginia, where's Virginia? <laughs> I I don't know. I just remember several of the kids were playing with rocks in the dirt at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Somehow when we read Colossians, there's this spectacular, vast stuff going on. And Kelly read it like that. And it's hard to take it in. It's hard to grasp all the things that uh, Paul is getting at. So I hope tonight we can grasp a little bit of what Paul is getting at. And I want to start with this. Mankind, God designed to ascend. Adam was created in the Garden of Eden. And other scriptures in the Bible indicate that the garden was a mountain or at the peak of a mountain. But Adam started in the garden. But I believe scripture indicates that Adam, the human race, was meant to ascend. Was meant to approach nearer and nearer to God's presence. As Paul says in the New Testament... They were to go from glory to glory. And as C.S. Lewis says in the Narnia Chronicles, further up and further in. It's a major theme in the faith that we're meant to ascend. We're meant to draw closer and closer to, to God's presence. And the Bible is full of ascents. It's full of this instinct. So, of course, we can think of the Tower of Babel. When mankind idolatrously went the wrong way to trying to ascend. We can think of Noah, who after the flood subsides, winds up on top of a mountain and offers a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. We can think of Abraham, who at the culmination of his life is called to offer Isaac on a mountain that later is going to be the mountain that the temple is built on. Most famously, Moses goes up Sinai and enters into God's presence. And the elders of Israel are called, but but Israel itself can't ascend that mountain. David, in one of my favorite stories in scripture, David purchases a threshing floor at the top of something basically where uh, where Abraham was going to offer Isaac. And he buys that site as a future site of the temple itself. The priests offer sacrifices that ascend into God's presence. The pilgrims that went annually three times a year to Jerusalem literally ascended to Jerusalem from lower regions. And all along the way, they're singing what? Psalms of ascent. God has called his people further up and further in. And what happens in the incarnation and in Jesus' resurrection, we talk a lot about Jesus' death on the cross. We talk a lot about his resurrection from the dead. I don't know if we talk enough about his ascension. Because when he ascended for the first time, human nature was brought all the way into God's presence. 
Adam hadn't gone there yet. But because Jesus took our nature, he raised from the dead, he brought our nature into the Father's presence. And for the first time, we see the destiny that God intended for the human race to rule over his creation with him, to reign with Jesus, ruling over his creation. But ascent is important, but ascent is not the end. Going up is not the end. I think there's something more. Adam was also called to descend. To bring God's reign and his order and his goodness as he took dominion over the earth. To unfold God's goodness in all the details of life. To unpack all the potentiality that God had put in creation. Jesus taught us in his prayer. What does he say? That we should pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. That we ascend, but we're called to descend. To bring God's kingdom, to bring God's goodness, to bring God's wisdom and reign to all the details of life. And the culmination of scripture, what we see is not an ascension. Does anybody remember what we see? We see a descent. We see the holy city that God has built descending from God. And it comes down. Because I think that God wants to, and I borrowed this phrase from somebody else, heavenize earth. He wants to heavenize earth. He wants to take his heart and his kingdom and his ways and his goodness. And with us, his people, he wants us to bring his goodness into the earth. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in these passages here. This passage is about an ascent where we set our hearts on things above. But then it's about a descent when we walk out these lives that he's given us here on earth. And we see this pattern all through scripture of ascending and descending. Of ascending into God's presence and then going back into our lives and bringing what we have seen and heard into our lives, just like Moses. In fact, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that we're just like Moses, beholding God with unveiled faces, only to go into our lives and bring that glory into our lives. So this is something of what Paul is getting at in these scriptures, ascending and descending. So let's look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That first line, if then you have been raised, you could say it this way, since you have been raised with Christ. And this is the first stop on the sort of Grand Canyon tour where it's hard to take in what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus was raised from the dead and entered into the Father's presence, every believer, they are in Christ and they therefore enter into that heavenly tabernacle. Paul is addressing this truth that all believers are unified to Christ and they can therefore, they, they, not they can, they are ascended with Christ to the Father's right hand. You don't have to struggle to attain membership in the people of God if you have faith in Jesus. It, the Father has already put you in him and brought you into his presence. This is what we call the, the doctrine of the union with Christ. But the bottom line is his people are in him. And we have ascended into God's presence. And so 
again, this is what's hard to get our minds around. We're sitting here tonight and we have the week that we've had and we have the aches and pains that we have and we have the concerns that we have. And Paul wants to say to us, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it. But you are with the Father in the Son in heavenly places. And what is true of Jesus is just as true of you. He died to sin. You died with him. He was raised from the dead. Paul says you were raised with him. He is hidden at God's right hand. People don't see Christ reigning at the Father's right hand, but he says you are in Christ at the Father's right hand. And one day, Christ is going to appear, and he's not going to appear like he did in his earthly ministry, where he just looked like some other Jew from Palestine. He's going to look like he did in the Transfiguration. And Paul says, mystery of mysteries, so are you. What we will be, what we will be is not yet clear. Look around. This is not the end result of what God has in store for his people. So there's a really important tension here. It's this tension of already. Paul says you are already raised, but not yet. What you will be is not yet evident. It's going to become evident the day that Jesus Christ himself is manifest. So that's the first thing, is getting our hearts and minds around this idea that when we believe in Jesus Christ and are baptized because of faith, we are unified with him and we are hidden at the Father's right hand. And I would encourage you to, when you pray, say, God, I'm hidden at your right hand and your son. Because of the promise of Scripture, because of what you've said, not because of anything I've done. So then Paul says we're to set our mind on things above. We're to seek things above. What does he mean by things above? Well, we've said it several times. It's an ascension. It's heaven. And all through Scripture, we see that heaven is this place where God rules. And it's easy to think that heaven or setting our hearts or our minds on heaven is kind of an escape. But it's not that. See, in Scripture, heaven is the place where things happen first. It's where things happen first. Things happen in heaven and then they get unfolded on earth. There Jesus is enthroned. There Psalm 110 is fulfilled. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead, ascended into the Father's presence, is seated at the Father's right hand, and is reigning. And the Father is extending his reign throughout the world. 2,000 years later, I don't know the last count, there's billions of Christians. There's billions of those who call on the name of Jesus. And Paul wants to remind us that we have full rights as citizens of that place. We have full access. We have full privileges of those who are citizens of that place. And he says, I want you to seek things that are above. And I want you to set your mind on things that are above. Now, notice this. Here's the reality. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God if you're a believer in Jesus. But here's also the reality. If you're just passive, you're going to fail to seek those things above. If you don't take action, you're going to fail to set your mind on things above. Paul makes an appeal to our will. And he makes an appeal to our minds. To orient ourselves on the reality of who we are. So here's the question. How will you daily? How will you daily set your minds on this reality about yourself? And about about what God has done? 
How will you set your minds on that reality? How did Paul say that, oh, my sufferings are light and momentary and mean it? And we know what Paul's sufferings were. How did he, how did he do that? How did Paul say, oh, you know, all the things I've gone through, the stoning and, you know, the shipwreck and all those things, light and momentary afflictions. Paul wasn't boasting. Paul took his own counsel. He set his mind on things above. He sought things above. He set his vision of reality primarily on this reality. And that allowed him to look at things in his life daily and see them in a totally different perspective. He let his imagination be gripped with the fact that he was dead and his life was hid with Christ and God. Paul says, don't set your mind on things on earth. And again, he's not talking about escapism. He's not talking about trying to get out. He's not talking about what often is accused, what religious people are often accused of. They're just so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. A quote I want to repeat again and again by Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Because they live from a different culture. They're colonists from heaven. They're about the business of heavenizing earth. And Paul is simply saying, listen, guys, you have a new citizenship. And so you need to think and feel like citizens of this new reality and leave that old way of thinking behind. And he's going to elaborate on it in a minute. But he says, you don't have to think and feel and choose like your old citizenship. You have come into a new kingdom. And it's time for you to hold on to that. Paul wants them to ascend into the presence of God by faith. He wants them to see Christ seated at the right hand of God. He wants to know themselves as beloved of the Father, hidden in Christ. And then he wants them to view their lives from that perspective. And that is a perspective adjustment. That's where you can see terrible suffering and you can call it light and momentary affliction. That's where you can look at your life and be disappointed about things that don't go your way and say, it's not a big deal. That's how you can see suffering as something that can potentially be redemptive. And if you want to, if you want a, a grasp of what he has in mind, just go to Philippians 2 where he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What does he have us setting our minds on? Lights and, and beauty. I think it's the mindset of Christ who didn't hold on to power, who didn't hold on to glory, who didn't hold on to reputation, but made himself a servant for other people. So Paul says, listen, if you set your mind on things above, if you set, seek things above, you can gladly, joyfully consider others more important than yourself. You can follow your Lord in a poured out life. So it's dwelling on the character of God. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you, you were living in them. So Paul says, let me just remind you of the kinds of things on earth that you used to be oriented around. Let me remind you of the, the mentality, the things that you're called to leave behind. These are examples of what he means by don't set your mind on things that are on earth. And there's two lists here that Paul has. The first list has to do with sexual sins. 
And the other list has to do with sins of anger, and we'll look just briefly at both of them. But I want to note that sometimes churches can tend to focus on one or the other. They can tend to focus on the sexual sins and and have a radar for any kind of deviation from that. Um, And uh, but on the other hand, they can be oblivious to anger in their lives or vice versa. And Paul says, no, we're called to repudiate both sins of anger and sins, sexual sins. So the first list, let me just mention the five things that he lists. He says, put these things to death. And I'll, I'll comment on what I think that means in a minute. But the first is sexual immorality. And by this, the word that Paul uses, he simply means any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Impurity. By impurity, Paul just means the corruption that comes to our character when we engage in immoral behavior. Paul says it's not something that you can do and it doesn't touch you. It begins to bring corruption to your life. Passion. By passion, Paul means uncontrolled sexual urges, evil desire. Probably Paul has in mind the kinds of things that precede lust. And I think this list gives us a picture of the development of sin. And finally, covetousness, which we usually take as greed. But I think in the context of the sins that he's listing, it's an unchecked hunger for pleasure. That turns into evil desire, that turns into lust, that turns ultimately into the kind of sins that Paul was saying we need to put to death. And notice what he says about covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry. Why? Because I make myself God. I want what I want. And if I don't get what I want, I'm angry. And I feel as though I'm God. And my desires should be treated like they're God's desires. But Paul says, guys, you're not God. And that's a glorious freedom. And just not getting your way shouldn't shock you or surprise you. Because you're not God. He says we're to put these things to death. What does he mean by that? I think this is what Paul means. He means cut off the line of supply to those sins. Cut off the line of supply to those sins. I don't know if you've ever been upset or bemoaned the fact that you haven't resisted a sin. When you haven't really attended to all the temptations, the three or four temptations, three or four steps ahead that ultimately led to that sin. Does that make sense? In the Proverbs, it describes a young man who goes out of an evening, wandering around, wanders down a street. He just happens to wander down a street and he gets waylaid into sexual sin. But the moment of sin wasn't just that moment when he got waylaid. It was many steps before then when he went, oh, I wonder what's down this street. Or, oh, well, let me go out tonight. Does that make sense? Paul says, cut off sin. Find its source. Go back. You're responsible, he says, as a Christian to find out and investigate the lifelines that feed sin in your life and cut them off at the source. This is much of what what Jesus says when he says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Finally, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And I'll just comment on the wrath of God briefly here. This is not malicious or capricious anger. This is not wrath like human wrath. This is God's settled opposition to everything that dehumanizes people. It is God's settled opposition to everything that is against human flourishing. God doesn't just lose his temper. 
He is opposed to everything that is against his design for what will make people thrive and flourish. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Once again, Paul uses a a, a clothing metaphor. He says, put this off, and then he says, put on Christ. Uh, Kelly talked about clothes that came home from camp being something that maybe you want to burn. I was remembering that when I was in middle school, I had a pair of Chucks, of Converse Chuck Taylors, that I wore in Mississippi without socks. And mom doesn't have a great sense of smell. My sister apparently always complained about the smell in my room. Um, I'm, I'm here to tell you they were toxic. Right? <laughs> Uh, and we should use that image. Paul is like, Ugh, that's your old life. J- get rid of that. Put it away. Put that old man away. So the second list that Paul gives is, as I said, sins of anger. And let me look briefly at those. This may, if the, the sexual sins didn't ping you, these may ping you. Anger. I think by this word, Paul means like a continuous state of seething hatred. Just a smoldering seething. Rage. Well, this is when that anger that seethes and smolders breaks out in words or action. Breaks out in a rage. Malice. This is a very important word, and we don't usually think about this word, but malice is the intent to hurt. Think about that. That should ping you. Because, you know, you, you think, oh, well, I'm not a malicious person. But if you ever intend to hurt with your words, that's malice. If you ever intend to hurt by withdrawal from a relationship, that's malice. Slander. Slander is taking that intent to hurt and putting it into action with words. And those words can be of various kinds, but they're meant to damage somebody's reputation. To make them look worse and perhaps make yourself look better. Filthy language. Words that have a foul association and abusive intent. Right? Often it is what we intend with our words. An abusive intent. And they just contaminate everybody that hears them. So that second list, again, it's a kind of a progression. It starts with just this sort of seething baseline anger. It can break out in rage. It can take shape in malice and an intent to hurt. And all of these things, Paul says, that's that old life. That's those old shoes. Get rid of them. And then he says, do not lie. Do not lie specifically to one another. That's the life of the old you that's twisted and twists everything out of shape around you. It twists everything around you to fit the distortions that are inside of you. It causes you to manipulate people, to twist people through manipulation or anger, and it causes you to twist the truth by lying. Paul says, put it away. And finally, he has this incredible sentence. You are being renewed after the image of your creator. 
We are being renewed. Paul says, listen, I know it does not always feel like it, but if you are in Christ, you are different people. You are different and you were called to be different. In Christ, human beings can begin to be what God always intended them to be. And Paul wants to remind them that they're being renewed in that image by which they were made. Christ himself who made them. We're to seek those things that are above. And Paul is saying, they don't act that way there. That's who you are. And they don't act that way there. That's not how they live. Being renewed in knowledge. It's knowledge of who God is and what he's done in Christ. And of who we are as a result. And we are to grow into that knowledge. So Paul is telling us to put away, finally, these old solidarities. He lists these polarities that have existed since the beginning. Jew, Greek, and others. He wants to say, listen, in Christ there's unity and there's harmony through the work of Jesus. There's not division. And these are the old solidarities of human life. Divisions along racial lines. Divisions along religious lines. Divisions along national lines. Divisions along language. Divisions along economic differences. Paul said that was all ripe ground for growing all the sins that I'm talking about. And Paul says everyone who is in Christ, those solidarities don't matter anymore. You are a new creation. So let me close by just asking this question. C.S. Lewis said, those that have done the most for this world were those who thought most of the next. How do we do that? How do you think about heavenly things? How do you do that such that your life is transformed and such that you are a part of this project of heavenizing earth? How do you ascend? How is that going to happen in your life? Because Paul wants to say, listen, I want to give you some good news. You don't have to live pressured into what happens around you. You don't have to live pushed into what for, the forces around you. But you can ascend. You're free. And you can live a life that is rooted elsewhere and demonstrates the life of elsewhere. You don't have to be pressured into this life. So Paul says, we're to learn to figure out what it means to ascend, to set our heart on things above. We're to learn to take this new identity uh, and receive the resources that come from God the Father to live the kind of life he wants us to live. So my question is, every day, what do you do? What, What daily practices do you do that allow you to seek things above, to set your mind on things above? And to begin to heavenize your small little world. Right again, when we pray, we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember I said heaven is where things happen first. And as we set our mind on things above, it'll change our speech. It'll change our physical environment. It'll be different the more we set our hearts on things above. It will change our relationships. It will change our work. The greatest enemy to this, I think, is not Satan. All right, Satan hates this idea and he wants to oppose it. But Paul has made it clear in Colossians that the forces of Satan are crushed. They're defeated. The greatest enemy here is you. It's your old man that he's called you to put away. It's the old habits 
outside of Christ that are still running around in your life that he's called you to put off. That's the greatest enemy to what God might want to do in your life. And Paul says, listen, your regular practice should be, oh, that's that old man life. Let me just put that in the dumpster. And let me put on Christ. And let me receive what is true about me because of what God has said is true about me. And let me return to my life with that reality. Amen. I think for Paul, this was a daily practice. A daily practice of orienting himself on who he was and a daily return to his life with that reality. So it's seeking things above and thinking about things above. What are the practices in your life, the practices of attention, the habits of attention on heavenly things that will change you, that will slowly do this work? And I can suggest a few and probably you've already thought of a few, but it's meditation on scripture, taking that as the reality about yourself. It is developing habits of heart that allow you to begin from your position in Christ and not from a position of, oh, well, I've got to I've got to earn God's love or I've got to achieve this. No, you receive who you are and you live from that place. So how do we appropriate these truths? It's not through feelings. I think one way we do it. And let me just close with this way. It's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. I don't know if you ever read something in Scripture. And you think, well, that's probably true of some people, but not me. Anybody ever do that? That's probably true of Bob Pescucci, but not me. Okay? Can't be true of me. Probably true of somebody really holy, but not me. Here's what you do. If the scripture says it about you, it's true. And I think the most appropriate thing to do is thank God for it. Thank God for it. You say, God, I don't feel in Christ. I I feel pretty down because of X, Y, and Z. And there's these circumstances in my life and I feel pretty down about it. But the word, your word says of me that I am in your son, hidden at his right hand. And that he's begun a work in me. And he's going to see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And he is in me. And so, Lord, where in my despair, I want to just kind of go back to these old patterns. I'm putting them aside. And I thank you that this is the reality about me. And I thank you that this is the truth about me. I think Thanksgiving claims the gifts of God. Don't sit around and try to feel if it's true. Thank God for the truth of his word and appropriate it. And then go into your life and do that day in, day out. And he will transform you from glory to glory. Amen.